walking down the path, someone yelled out to me to come back, come back. And I said, why? He said, Cesar wants to talk to you. He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to do a big banner. Very political, very like a big political cartoon blown up so that people can see. We're talking about farm workers who don't read. You know, they do read some Spanish, but not a lot. I said, let's get them, let's get a picture across to them of their own struggle. So it says I love that. I saw myself as an integral part of the UFW. I didn't, I didn't think that I should be given special treatment, you know, because I'm an artist. And she said it was really important for me to stay on that path because people need to know the diversity and complexity and the multidimensional mujeres that we are. We're not just this one monolith. Hello and welcome to Articulated. I'm Toby Ryder and I work as an information technology specialist here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Art and activism often work hand in hand, making history and conditions visible while envisioning new futures. In this episode, we'll hear from three artists whose work has advanced Latino and labor activism in California. These three artists, Barbara Carrasco, Carlos Almaraz, and Esther Hernandez all worked with the United Farm Workers, a national union of agricultural laborers that formed in the mid-1960s through the merger of the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee and the National Farm Workers Association. The murals, banners, prints, and graphics created by these artists helped to galvanize support for workers' rights during strikes and negotiations as they drew attention to human labor required to feed and supply a nation. Barbara Carrasco was born in El Paso, Texas in 1955 and moved to Los Angeles by 1960 with her family. She came into her own as an artist in the 1970s and 80s as she created striking graphics to serve communal causes. For decades, Carrasco worked closely with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, the leaders of United Farm Workers, and she recounted meeting Chavez and his empowering influence in her 1999 oral history with Jeffrey Rangel. See, during that period, um, while I was a student at UCLA too, almost immediately, when I, 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 was, I was 19 years old when I met Cesar Chavez. He um, came to UCLA to give a speech Seriously, I thought he epitomized um, what every good Catholic should be about because he, he was dedicating his entire life to, um, you know, bettering the lives of the most, you know, exploited workers in America, which are mm-hmm. farm workers. And I immediately, you know, volunteered my services to him. You know, I said, mm-hmm. I would like to do anything for you. You know, I, I draw really well. If you want me to go on a picket line, I'll do that. I'll, and, and I had no idea that I would work with him for 15 years. Wow. I just really, seriously, I didn't, I didn't think I would do that all those years, but I did. So you met him at UCLA. I was not, yeah, I was 19 years old when I met him. I wasn't actually, a, I, I just became a student there. I mean, I wasn't even a student there. I was, my, my boyfriend was there. I was still at West Valley College, but I was always doing stuff on the campus. I was part of the welcoming committee uh-huh. to, to welcome them onto the campus. I so, see. so um, I that drawing for the announcement that Caesar was going to speak, the flyer that was done announcing his speech, is at Stanford right now. Mm-hmm. But I did a little black egg drawing of Caesar, and he signed it. Wow! So that's the only drawing that's in the Stanford collection. Did your figurative? 
principles come through on that? Were you able to render the essence of Chavez in that? Oh, yeah, looks exactly. <laughs> it looks exactly like him. Yeah, he, you know, thank God. But because I, I really, I really thought he was a real. I still think he was a really great person. So when when I started working with Caesar, um, initially I started doing small banners, like ten by fourteen feet was the first one I did. And that was in 1979 when they did the small ones. Anyway, um, um, but then uh, initially Caesar had asked me to uh, consult with him on what kind of images I'd come up with for a banner for a convention. Mm-hmm. And um, the banners were always for conventions, you right. conventions. And then later I would do some small banners for like um, specific rallies or uh-huh. or demonstrations or. Um, in, super, in front of supermarkets. Yeah, they were always on canvas. Uh-huh. They are always um, different types of canvases and different weights. And then, but I noticed because UFW was not an arts organization, they didn't really treat the artwork really well. They, they a lot of times ruined a lot of really great banners that um, Carlos had done and Magoo had done right. by, by folding them instead of rolling them up. Oh. And then they put them in these um, storage rooms that had a lot of uh, you know, moisture in the air. I mean, so once a banner was used for a convention or a rally or something, would it ever be brought back out for? Yeah, for other other for events, other things, okay. other events. They used them a lot. Seen seen banners several times, mm-hmm. but it's just that it was kind of sad to see the way um, they were being stored and yeah. and taken care of. So I, you know, I I decided to. Caesar had asked me to do a really huge banner for a, a conference one one year. He wanted a 30 by 30 foot banner done, and he had he gave me such short notice on it. I think it was two weeks notice to do mm-hmm. something big like that. And uh, but I said yes, of course, to it because he's asking. Right. So um, <laughs> I was gonna say no, Caesar, I, I won't do that. But, but I, I decided to do it on vinyl instead of um, canvas because of the way they they stored the work. And um, Carlos Amaras had, I mean, actually. Uh, it was Richard Duardo who suggested that I use um, these inks that are really good for vinyl, NASDAQ uh-huh. inks, and they're kind of toxic, you know, actually. Okay. So I, I had um, a former nun, which is really good because she, you know, that born to suffer mentality was there. <laughs> and I had uh, several people. <laughs> I got it. She help. helps you out. She it. helped me out. Yeah. We had a, like less than two weeks to do these, this big, huge banner. And we finished it right on time. And, um, it Where was, was the convention? It was in Salinas. in Salinas. In Salinas. Or Delano. One of those places. Okay. Salinas or Delano. And um, and it was about Caesar's five-year plan. So I sat down with him. He told me what he thought he, what, what, how uh, he'd like to see the banners look and uh, what kind of images he wanted in them. So we would go, you know, we had such a short time that I, I used, um, I would use people who were in the UFW as my models. Right. Like Caesar's daughter posed for me huh. and um, his daughter Lou, who's married to the president, Artie Rodriguez. Uh, anyway, she, she, I made her pregnant because Caesar was talking about the future and, and mm-hmm. about consumerism. So I had her holding a can and then a letter from the FDA talking about what kind of pesticides might be in that product. Carrasco goes on to discuss the importance of the cultural worker within the labor movement and how her own idea of serving the community evolved over time. In the late 1990s, Carrasco created a widely celebrated portrait of Dolores Huerta, the famed negotiator for United Farm Workers, who coined the slogan, Si Si Pueda. That portrait now lives at the National Portrait Gallery, in Washington, D.C. 
is that everyone in the union, whether it's someone on the picket line or there's someone who's cooking for the people in the picket line, mm-hmm. you know, or, or someone who's who's typing the, the flyers for a particular event, publicizing the event, all those people, all those different types of people, they're they're treated exactly the same way. Uh-huh. So I didn't seem I, I saw myself as an integral part of the UFW and not not as I shouldn't not that I I didn't I didn't think that I should be given special treatment, you know, because I'm an artist. I remember being really criticized by actually Maku really got on my case one time mm-hmm. and said, you know, there's a there's gotta be a limit to how how much uh how bad you're treated, you know. And my yeah. and, and even you know, a lot of people would say, Well, well, why don't they pay you or why don't they do this and but but everybody, you know, I, I saw myself as a cultural worker. That's why I continued to work with them for so many years. I see. Because I just respected uh, what Caesar is doing. It's because you're an artist. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So. The idea of being a cultural worker, how did you come to see yourself in that role? And do you still see yourself in that role? Well, I think I, I became aware of that when I during my conversations with Cesar Chavez because well, just, it was really great to have these meetings with him all the time. But one, one time he told me that he thought he was an artist also. And um, I thought that was really strange. I, I said, you're an artist, Cesar? And he goes, well, don't you think it takes a certain amount of creativity to um, get so many people to work for, for so little, for practically nothing? And I, and I, and I, and I thought that was so great. To, you know, when he, when he said that to me, I said, well, yeah, I, I guess so, because, you know, um, that's true. I mean, what people are getting out of it is that helping other people, you know, mm-hmm. it's just the idea of being of service to other people, to other human beings. And and I told him that I thought that what I had initially thought of him as, you know, as just a, a real good Catholic, you know, that he was a, <laughs> that he was a good Catholic, you know. And Jesus he thought that was he thought an that was, too. <laughs> yeah. And he, was, he was just... Yeah, and so I guess you know, but but now now it's it's so different now because I'm I'm not that same person anymore. I mean, even some students late recently asked me if I still work for the UFW, and I I haven't done that for so, for a really long time because you know so many things have happened. I I took time out to to go to CalArts, and I told Caesar before I went to CalArts in 1990, but I told him that he wouldn't see me for a couple years. You know, while I worked on my MFA, and he said, "What do you mean, Nicola? I'm I'm actually going to devote all those the entire two years to to good a good MFA program. You know, like some you know I wasn't going to do what I did at UCLA as an undergrad, which was be a student and then do a million other things on the side and right. compromise my GPA. And you know what I mean? Right. I, I was going to just do that. That was okay. all I was going to do. And, and he said, "Well, go for it, Barbara. I think that's great. You're going to do that." I, I think the work that I'm doing now is, is I don't see it so much as a, a cultural worker as much as it, I feel like now I just want to document people that are real important in our community, like Dolores Huerta. You know, I, I just finished a four-color silkscreen print of her. Did you see it? Carlos Almaraz was a profoundly influential artist, 
especially as a leader in the Chicano art movement. Born in Mexico City in 1941, Almaraz moved to Los Angeles with his family in the early 1950s. He developed a prolific career across prints, paintings, and murals, with raucous images of urban life, including freeways, car crashes, and crowds of city characters. He was a founding member of Los Four, a vital artistic collective in Los Angeles, and he was significantly involved with the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez, which he recounts in his 1987 oral history with Margarita Nieto. Suggests that you meet Cesar Chavez. Casually suggests that I should meet Cesar Chavez. So I said, well, that's good. I'll do that. Within 24 hours, I was in front of Cesar Chavez. He's a hard man to know, hard man to get to meet. But I was astounded at myself for for realizing that if you want something, you have to go out and get it. You must, you do it or you don't. So within 24 hours, and the way that I was managed is that I left San Juan Batista. I drove down to La Paz, first to Delano. He was no longer there. They told me where he would be. I made a phone call, was introduced to the editor of El Malcriado, which was uh, Venustiano Olguin. I said, I want to do volunteer work for the farm workers. And since I had done work in the journalism before, I would like to do it for the, I knew, I understood they had a newspaper. He said, fine, come on down, we'll meet you. I did, I went down, he met me, he liked me, and he said, we're having a meeting with Cesar right now concerning the, the 1972 convention that we're all going to be working on. Why don't you join us? So I did. He led me into the big hall at the administration building La Paz, and I said, as I say, within 24 hours, I was in front of the man himself. And uh, when it was time to speak on so-called decorations, they turned to me and I gave my announcement of what I had suggested to do, which is to paint a big banner, a la Diego Rivera and, uh, you know, some of the other uh, Mexican painters, muralists. Well, Cesar loved the idea. And he said, however, we're not ready to talk about decorations till later. So I was a little insulted because he referred to my mural as decorations. So we left the meeting early and I left it rather abruptly because as we were walking down the path, someone yelled out to me to come back, come back. And I said, why? He says, Cesar wants to talk to you. He wants to talk now about the decorations. <laughs> so we went back and sure enough, he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to do a big banner. Very political, very like a big political cartoon blown up so that people can see. We're talking about farm workers who don't read. You know, they do read some Spanish, but not a lot. I said, let's get, them, let's get a picture across to them of their own struggle. So Cesar loved that. And he said, great, what do you need? And I told him what I needed. He says, well, we don't have any money. So I don't know if we can do it. So he left it at that. Then about, I stayed with the farm workers, worked on the Malcriado for the next week or so. Then Cesar came back to the office one day and said, well, how much do you really need to do this banner? And I told him I needed about $300 and some paint. So he got me some of the money for the banner. And then I went out myself and got a volunteer donation for the paint. And then we started to, with the help of Mark Bryan. We painted an enormous 64 by 32 foot banner, political cartoon on this big piece of canvas. Uh, they rolled it up and for the convention, they rolled it out and hung it up on the wall. And it looked great, you know. Is it still in existence? We, I don't know. I assume it is, but it's probably in real bad uh, condition because it's, it was done with acrylic paint, and acrylic paint becomes moldy, and 
cans rolled up even anywhere can become pretty moldy. It was later shown, and it, it is a, it's, it's, it's astounding to me because I had never done that piece for any kind of museum recognition or any of the so-called high art recognition. But it was shown two years later at the Los Angeles uh, Muse Museum of, of Art, on Wilshire Boulevard, at one of my shows. Almaraz worked for the Union while he was in graduate school in California, and he talked about the friction between those two institutions during his development as an artist, as well as the rich history of muralism in Mexico and the United States that he learned along the way. Was there between the work that you were doing and with Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Union and the work you were doing at Otis Parsons in working for toward your master's degree? Well, there was a tremendous clash there. And if it hadn't been for the sympathy and understanding of one teacher, Joe Mugnani, who understood my politics and what I had to go through to come up with something new and different, I don't think I would have made it through the school. I, no. I presented the political banner that I did for the farm workers as one of my presentations. You do a presentation every few months. I hung it on the outside of one of the buildings, and there it was, it's the neo-social realist painting of the farm worker struggle during a period of cerebral contemplation of art that was known as minimal art or conceptual art. This is what all the students were doing. Well, it was totally offensive to the sensibility of the school. I heard through the grapevine. However, up front, I received my degree and things went on. But the thing with me during that period is that Although I was leaving the school and working for the farm workers and had photos and work to show that I was working, I far out, and I knew it, distanced most of my colleagues at school. I was a little older than they were. I had more experience. I'd already lived in New York. I had returned. And my work, there was tons of it. I was, I am still tremendously prolific. So not only had I produced a 64-foot banner, I had done lots of, of paper on gouache, enormous uh, murals on paper, I had portfolios of pastel drawings. I had, you know, an abundance of work. So no way could they really criticize me for not sticking to the rules. I had gone beyond the rules. Um, I felt pretty confident in that. But that also belies another theory that's current in, in among historians right now, and that is that the art, the, the muralist movement in Los Angeles was a street artist movement. Well, yes, it was, I think. It was uh, not a... It was not a uh, muralist movement of the 20s and 30s in Mexico where you had the state actually supporting the murals. Right. You did not have uh, the institutions, say, of, of New York in the teens who were, or in the 30s uh -huh. to WPA who were also paying for murals. No, this was being originally sponsored by community groups, community organizations. And on my, my part was through the United Farm Workers who sponsored some of this, not doing really much giving me perhaps some money or some paint or some material, but uh, mostly going out right to the community itself and asking for donations to do a piece of work. The first murals, there was no real salary. You got a tiny stipend, but there was no real salary. My first mural was totally free in that I didn't get a penny. Not even the farm workers gave me money for the uh, their first mural in the street. They didn't have it, they couldn't afford it. But the idea picked up that in order to, to do a mural in our popular state, but you need a cause. So there were several bandwagons you can get on. Farm workers, the feminist cause, the cause to liberate certain groups of people, etc. 
or the cause just to be an individual to make that statement. So you kind of can break down the murals into these categories. Because you needed a collective force right. behind it. Uh -huh. Plus at times you needed the collective money that a force like that could give you mm -hmm. to get your mural done. But I think ultimately most of the murals were paid through community money that had been used to redevelop a certain area. But this was only after 1975. Prior to that, it was uh, willy-nilly. Wherever you can get some money for the mural, do it. Mm -hmm. And the artists were doing some crazy things to get some money to, to do a mural because that was the name of the game. Everybody, especially on the east side, everybody wanted to paint a mural. Now, that movement is, is really subsided. There are still a few murals being done, but not the way it was being done in the 70s. That was a heyday for it. And it was, I say, it was a tail end of a national movement that started way back in the late 60s. Esther Hernandez is an artist, printmaker, and activist based in San Francisco, California. She was born in 1944 in the San Joaquin Valley as part of a family and community of agricultural workers. Throughout her work, Hernandez honors women's contributions to culture, which she often highlights through savvy humor or sharp irony. In her 2021 oral history with Melissa San Miguel, Hernandez described her early immersion in the arts and her first encounters with activism. The Mexican culture, like so many other cultures, we, we come from thousands of years of art traditions. So in between all the hard work and, and what have you, there was always time to for self-expression. And it took so many different forms. So I was totally surrounded by the arts. It sort of gave meaning to our lives. And my, my grandmother did this like embroidery that had like thousands of years of tradition, uh, wonderful gardening. And she was a magnificent dancer of folk music, Mexican folk. And she could also do the jitterbug or whatever. Was that? <laughs> Father, eternal side, he was a master carpenter in Mexico. So when he came here, he built many houses as well as other structures. But also in his spare time, he created sculptures religious and, and otherwise. So um, my father's side, um, the Yaki side, uh, they were musicians and dancers also. So, and my father was into photography. So, so, but there was always time for a dance. Even if we worked 10 hours in the field or whatever, we'd come home and get dressed and, and go dance. And even when we were in the fields, we were singing, you know, trying to make the best of very hard moments. Uh, singing and, and uh, somebody maybe reciting a poem or, or a passage from the Bible. There was all kinds of things, joke, joke, storytelling, and the magnificent storytelling, especially by the elders who had come from Mexico, mm -hmm. talking about the revolution and what they experienced and how their feelings about being here in the United States. So it was a very, very rich uh, environment for a young child with a very big imagination. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it sounds like you were surrounded by art, you know, in ways large and small, you know, by everyone in the community. Yes, absolutely. Highly valued. Was there any um, experience you had with art either that you witnessed or maybe that you participated in that like made a, a strong impression on you too? 
Well, it's always funny to say this, but um, when the uh, United Farm Workers were forming and taking shape and becoming highly visible, and this was about the time I had left school and I was doing a little bit of junior college in the area, and I was studying like business, because that's what we were forced to do, and art at the same time. And I have to say the business skills really helped me <laughs> later on when I had to learn the business of art. But but anyway, so I was in school and, and the farm workers were really becoming visible and becoming controversial. My father was one of the first people in our little barrio to join the union. And so, but there was like a lot of um, fear among some people, communism, antichrist, the whole bit. But in general, most of us were supportive of it, union. And so, again, a very transformative time in that period of my life was the farm workers when they were making their famous pilgrimage to Sacramento, where they were marching from Delano, and they marched to Sacramento, I think, to be there on Easter Sunday. Right. It was something like that so long ago. But they came through my little hometown. They marched. And and we, there was all kinds of uh, the newspapers, the TV, everything, the radio was pretty much telling us to stay away because they were just a bunch of outside agitated troublemakers, right? But that didn't stop us. But the, the streets, the highways, that because they, they were marching to the little country roads and they were coming yeah. down those little highways and they were leading into our little town, the streets were lined with high, highway patrol, marshals, FBI, state police, city police, everything. And they even had dogs. We went anyway. We went anyway. And we welcomed them. And then we had like this great big sort of celebration at a little park in my hometown. And there were speeches and all of that. But like to me, the, the one thing being the artist was that seeing the Teatro Campesino. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in my life that I had ever seen artwork being used for social justice. They had, they were singing, they were dancing, they were doing theater, they were doing poetry. And more for me, they had like all of these port, what I would call portable murals and banners. And they were always changing them around and this and that. It was a backdrop and all of that. So for me, I had never seen anything like that in my life. None of us had. Mm -hmm. So that really stayed with me in terms of uh, probably giving me some sense of where I might fit in that world and in, in the civil rights, the Chicano civil rights movement mm -hmm. that was later to become like so much a part of my life. I was fortunate that the first people that I met sort of connected me up right away with a, a, like a, a college that was sort of super radical called Grove Street. It was very short lived, it no longer exists. But it was a school that was filled with a, a lot of social activism and kind of the heart and soul of it, where it were all. Uh, murals and printmaking. So I had this, this sort of natural flow and connection into that community. Mm, mm -hmm. I kind of found my place mm. let's put it that way. It kind of gave me my visual voice when I, when I met up with muralism and being told at that point from people like Malagias Montoya and other people that, that the murals and screen prints were very powerful because then, even as in now, 
we had no uh, control of the media. Mm. We had no foot in the media. And so with murals, aside from our own personal work, we could create work that was public and talk Mm. about all kinds of issues or just to beautify our communities. And and with the screen printing, it was another way to disseminate uh, like visual imagery and to share knowledge, uh, announce events of sorts, and again, to beautify our community. So the right. was like another medium, yeah, to share with a bigger community mm-hmm. that didn't need a lot of money, that didn't need a lot of fancy equipment. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what happened in terms of how, and then from the, there, I just moved on to other colleges and oh, universities eventually. Sun Mad is one of Hernandez's most recognizable works, and it encapsulates many of her artistic concerns. In the print, Hernandez has desiccated the eponymous Sun Maid of the California-based raisin brand into a skeleton. The bold colored branding now bears the words unnaturally grown, in reference to the industrial chemicals used in agriculture that endangered workers. She talked about the inspiration behind the iconic parody. I, I have to say that my son, Matt, was inspired by my mother. In 19, I think it was 79, I went to go visit my mom. And it was uh, in the San Mateo in the summertime. It's like 110, et cetera. It's just brutal. And I went in the little house that my mother lived in, the house I was raised in, made by my grandparents, and my uncles and my father, in Chinatown. She was boiling water. And I couldn't think about boiling water. I'd never seen her do that. Well, it turned out, as she explained, that the water table in the little in the barrio had been contaminated. And it turned out from some research that had been done by some students from UC Berkeley that it, it had been contaminated with all of the chemicals that had been used like for, for just generations. All the chemicals in the farming, the agribusiness around us, it had seeped into the water table. As a result the water table was shut down, so there was no water available at that point. You had to either buy it or boil it or filter it in some way or another. And at that point, most people like filtering or bottled water was not even common then so much. So she was boiling water. So she told me that story. And needless to say, I was horrified because one of the reasons I seemed to be going back and forth so much was, was uh, relatives who were suffering from cancer or dying from cancer. So anyway, needless to say, I, I, mentally I made this connection with the, the contamination through the water table and our being farm workers all our lives and that we were drinking it, we were bathing in it, we were, like, we were totally enveloped in it from the field. There was no way we were getting away from it. So anyway, I, I, so I had these talks with my mother about that and all of that, and I still didn't know I was really bothered. I didn't know what to do with it, what I was going to do, like what most people were doing in that area, including the city governments and the state governments, Mm -hmm. is just to ignore it. We're just going to lower the standard and turn the water back on. That's what happened, even to this day, I think. Anyway, so, but I continued my dialogue with my mother. And another time I was going to visit her again. And when I was driving down the little country roads, because it's surrounded by great fields, that whole area. Most of the work we did was related to the raisin industry, picking the grapes, laying them out in the middle of the fields to dry. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, so driving down that road, 
and I saw the sun made like uh, it's like a poster of it, the sun made because it's really a cooperative of farmers who they raise the grapes and then they turn into raisins and they send them to this cooperative where they're processed. When I saw the sun made, because in my back of my mind was still the water, hmm. the contamination of the land, I saw the sun made and I thought, there it is. There it is. And one of the things that I had always learned about my mom and even my dad was kind of the dualities of nature, the dualities, okay? Not only the passing of time, the transitory nature, but the duality. And I think those are very Mexican. They're very indigenous. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so my mind started thinking about what is the other side or what is her other side? What is the other side of this story? And so that's kind of how I started sort of uh, in my mind, transforming her to tell the story about what was going on over there. And I had numerous dialogues with my mother about this. And all the way through it, she was supportive of me and really thought that I should tell the story, even though, even though, even to this day, my son, Matt Image, which has been shown all over the world, published a million times mm -hmm. in the Smithsonian, blah, 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 has never been shown in that part of the San Joaquin Valley where I'm from. It's always been censored when any time anybody's tried to put it in a little exhibit in some little town out that way or bigger city, it's always been censored. It's extremely controversial over there, even among the farm workers, because it shakes the ground of their, their well-being, of their lives. They're dependent on that type of work. So having that image around is just way too controversial. Hernandez was a member of Las Mujeres Muralistas, an artist collective founded during the 1970s in San Francisco that focused on creating large-scale works that honored Latino women. She delves into that group dynamic and the histories they brought together, as well as the trajectory of public engagement and awareness that she's witnessed over her long career and her hopes for the future. Like I mentioned earlier, printmaking and muralism were part of the, uh, the Chicano civil rights art movement because that gave us access to the community because we had no control of the, the media in general. Not like now when there's a social uh, media, with Facebook and what have you. Back then there was none of that. And so it was, it was a way of engaging with the community. And, and it came to me, I didn't necessarily go look into it. Hmm. But I was invited to participate in the murals and I thought it was a magnificent idea. Not only because it was a journey with the Mujeres Muralistas for my chance to, to work with them and sort of exchange all kinds of ideas and information, but it was a wonderful and rare opportunity. I mean, it's like my first opportunity really to engage with the public on that level. Mm. Up until then, I think most of us, the only murals that we had seen were like in public spaces or in churches. Okay. So this was a chance for us to really sort of honor and talk about different issues in a fresh new way that, that was, there was no history. And there were a few people who were creating murals, some of the guys, and they were making wonderful murals. But for the most part, they were copying or interpreting, I should say, the, me the Mexican masters. Mm -hmm. And so I think what was really fresh about the Mujeres Moralistas, I think it was because of our diversity and because we were working as a collective that all of our ideas came together, like with a feminist approach, 
and and also because of the great diversity within our with our within the mujeres, the Caribbean women, South American, Chicanas, mm-hmm. urban Latina, we all had like a different something different to say, a different message we should mm-hmm. say. And so that was very fertile and crazy and wild and fun, <laughs> as you can imagine. But in a lot of ways, it felt like I was just sort of dealing with family with my sisters. I worked with different issues of problems. And you know, at the end, you want to do something positive or come out with something that engages a community. So that, so aside from all of the dialogue and back and forth and what have you, we kind of all knew that we wanted to do something positive for the community. So then we still work together to sort of come up with a, a mural idea that in some way would inspire and, and um, maybe educate the community. In particular, I think we were really interested in diversity and intergenerational, making presence the fact that, that the Latino presence, especially in the mission, it wasn't not monocultural. It was there were South Americans, mm-hmm. there were uh, <clears throat> Afro-Americans, mm-hmm. uh, there were uh, acknowledging our native blood our urban existence, our farm worker backgrounds, all of that. And, and that was really fresh. And I think that was uh, what really was exciting for the community and for us too. We were sort of, sort of creating a dialogue, I should say. I wanted to honor, portray the strength and dignity of these women that I was meeting who inspired me in so many different ways. I wanted to give them life. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to be able to share them, uh, you know, that, that beauty. And also, okay, I'll just back it up a tiny bit here. At one point in my life, too, I had a chance to spend time with Dolores Huerta, who was a great supporter of the arts. She is a closet poet. But anyway, she loves dance, but she's always been supportive of the arts. And I remember one time having a dialogue with her when we were talking something about art and the role of Chicana artists in all of that. And she, because she knew that I love portraiture, and she said it was really important for me to stay on that path because people need to know the diversity and complexity and the multidimensional. Mujeres, that we are, we're not just this one monolith. Because in general, she said, the only time that we would see Latinas on, on the media, whatever, newspapers, whatever, we were either to be feared or pitied. So we never really had an opportunity to see women who are dancers, who are curanderas, who are truck drivers, who are what have you. So, so that kind of added to me and sort of gave me a sense of purpose inspired me to continue on my path, no matter what, no matter with whatever, with the, the general art history, which I could have cared less. It is changing now, thanks to people like yourself. It's changing now in the museums, the Smithsonian, all of that. It, the face is changing. Mm-hmm. And there's more inclusiveness. There's more interest in a lot of the younger generation of uh, curators and, and uh, what have you. It's, it's changing, and I'm very grateful to that. Our allies, I mean, it's opening up. We have something to say that resonates with a lot of people that I never would have thought.
This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, work cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.sa.edu support. Thank you.